Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, uh, we are going to jump back into uh, the series that we've been involved in for the last few weeks called Practical Faith, and we are doing kind of a line-by-line, thought-by-thought study through the book of James. Uh, And if you were here last weekend, we actually took a one-week break from that series uh, just to kind of step into what uh, we were talking about, Kara was mentioning during worship this morning, sort of a Kairos moment, a window in time where we felt like God was speaking to us specifically about worship and just what happens when a group of people gather together and worship and how it is warfare and we can see victory in our worship. So if you were not here last week, uh, please go back and check that out. I really do want uh, our culture to be a place of breakthrough in worship. Um, You know, so often you come to church and uh, many people just kind of sit in rows and keep their hands down here and hands in their pocket during worship and kind of give this oratory obligatory song. That is not worship at all. Worship is a weapon and we get to use it in warfare and God has called us to be the kind of church that lifts up our voices, united and makes some declarations over our city. So uh, check that out if you didn't get uh, if you didn't get to hear it last weekend. But today we're going to jump back into James and we're going to go into chapter two, and we'll go there in just a moment. But uh, before we do that, I just want to recap what this series is all about and give a little bit of foundational framework before we start, because today's teaching in particular can get a little bit funky if we don't understand what this book is all about. Um, I traditionally would not spend a bunch of time recapping previous sermons, but in the first week, um, I did mention that it is important when we go to the book of James that we understand both the heart of the author and the audience he's speaking to, the heart of the author and the audience he's speaking to, because if If we don't understand those two things, then the book of James can become a little bit of a rule-following behavior modification plan, which is not the gospel at all. We are not here to try to just become better people. That's not what this is all about. No matter how hard we try, we are still messed up and broken people in need of a savior. We are here trying to get closer to Jesus, not trying to figure out how to live better lives. And so uh, when you understand the heart of the author, a heart that says, I have so radically encountered Jesus, and you... And as a result of that, I want to change the way I live my life so that I can please him. And you understand who he's writing to, which is an audience of new believers. He's not writing to people who don't yet know Jesus. He's writing to folks who've already made a decision to follow him. Then it really does frame in some of the statements he makes in the book, such as today's. So we're going to jump in in chapter two. And as we do that, let me offer one more disclaimer. Apparently I need a lot of them today. Uh, But one more disclaimer, and that is the text we're going to be looking at today is probably one of the most confrontational pieces of scripture that has ever laced the Bible, okay? Um, It is the kind of scripture that has created major divisions in the body of Christ in, in, in history. Uh, in fact, uh, Martin Luther, uh, not the king, the pasty white guy from the 1500s, um, he actually tried to denounce the book of James and a few others in the Bible and get it removed from the canon of Scripture because he said it is inconsistent with the teachings and the gospel, uh, teachings of Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not true. He had a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of the book of James. And so today, I don't want us to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. I want us to see what James is saying here in context and apply that to our life. Are you up for that? Awesome. That's a solid three and a half. Okay, I'm going to need a little more engagement today. Uh, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Pause there. Works is a phrase that he's using for good deeds. Some translations say good deeds. So what good is it if they say they have faith, but they don't do anything good? Can that kind of faith save them? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things they need for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well, you do well. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Uh, okay. How foolish can you see, or can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So we're going to jump into this, and I know that that's not the most encouraging scripture to open up a sermon with, but uh, I, want, I want to encourage you before you get out of here, and I believe that this will transform the way we live, because the Bible says of itself that every time we let the word of God out, it can change us, it can shape us, it can mold us, and it can transform us. So we're going to believe that today, all right? If you're going to take notes, uh, how should we title this? I debated titling it from Rihanna. Work, 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 work. Um, but we're not going to do that because that's inappropriate. Uh, let's title it Works Without Work. Works Without Work. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you today. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your house. And I thank you for every person who's still in bed because they decided to sleep in instead of come to church. Bless them and convict them in Jesus' name. <laughs> And Father, we pray in these few moments that we have together uh, that you would do what you've promised by your word, that you would change us before we leave this place. God, we didn't wake up early and get to church to sing songs, hear somebody preach to us, and leave the room exactly the same way we did when we walked in. We came here today because we believe that your presence and your word have the power to change our lives. Do something deep in our hearts and change us from the inside out before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments before. Um, I've had a few of them in my life, but the, uh, the moment where your whole life flashes before your eyes and you think for just a second, like, this is it. I'm gonna go meet my maker. Anyone had a few of those moments before in your life, near-death experiences? Yeah. Um, I've had a few. Um, I don't know if that's because I'm cursed or what, but uh, I remember one time um, I was flying face-first towards a diving board while I was on the diving team, and uh, that's another story for another day, and um, the fact that none of my high school sports involved anything but a Speedo. Um, but another time, uh, I was uh, aggressive inline skating. Anyone from the 90s? Any 90s kids here? Okay. There was something called aggressive inline skating. Thank you, my man. So we put rollerblades on, and we'd jump up on rails, and we would, like, grind and stuff, and it was really awesome. I'm dating myself here. Um, but this one time, I jumped up on a rail, and I was grinding the rail, and as I was grinding the rail, I fell backwards, and I landed on the small of my back and the back of my head, and at that point in my life, I had never had the wind knocked out of me before, so I didn't know what it felt like, and if you've ever had that happen, like, you can breathe out, but you can't breathe in, and I thought, this is it. This is how I die, with Jinko jeans on and a pair of aggressive inline skates. This is where it ends for me. Uh, but the, 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 the most memorable moment where I thought for, for sure, this is where it ends for me, um, when I was 17 years old, uh, I was in a rock band, and I thought I was going to be a rock star. Again, different story for another day, hence the tattoos. Um, but I was leaving our band practice, and we had this studio out in, in the country where we were rehearsing, and uh, I had a, a small Chevy S10 truck. And, uh, whew, okay, I don't think they make those anymore, but that's cool. Uh, and uh, I, it was a single, single cab, so you could get three guys in this little bench seat, and I had brought a couple of buddies with me out to band practice. And uh, when we were leaving band practice, it was pouring down rain. We had about a 20-minute drive back into uh, the city we lived in at the time, and we had to get on the freeway. And so I stuffed these two guys in the car with me, and we put their instruments in the back. And because it was pouring down rain, we're like, we have to hurry up and get home. 
So I was driving a little faster than I should. I'm looking at a police commander right now as I say this. I'm gonna confess a couple things that you cannot hold me responsible for, okay, right now. So I'm going down these country roads a little too fast, and we pull up to this stop sign right before we get on the freeway, and I look both ways, and there's no cop, so I just blow right through the stop sign. And so I'm getting onto the on-ramp of the freeway, and as I get onto the on-ramp of the freeway, I begin to lose control of the vehicle. And I do the one thing they tell you never to do in driving school. I jerk the steering wheel the other way, they call it an overcorrection, and I overcorrected, and as I overcorrected, my car fishtails, and I lose control, and we land stalled, facing oncoming traffic in the slow lane of the freeway. Stalled because my father thought it was a good idea for me to learn how to drive a stick. Thanks for that, Dad. And I am now dead car staring oncoming traffic down. And as soon as we pick up our heads and we realize what's just happened, I see a semi-truck coming directly for us in the slow lane, headlights in my eyeballs, beeping his horn. And I'm like, this is how it ends. 17 years old, I had a good run, you know? I almost made it. I almost made it to be a rock star. It was great. But uh, that was the end of it. And so I, I hurry up and I get the car started. And at the last moment, right before this truck hits us, he swerves into the next lane and we kind of make our way all off the freeway. And... Uh, I live to tell the story about it. So here I am today. Aren't you glad? Okay, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Again, a solid three. Thanks. Okay. Um, now, should I have been going slower as I entered onto the freeway? Absolutely. Should I have stopped at the stop sign? Yeah. Should my dad have let me buy an automatic? Yes. <laughs> like, all of these things are true. But the reason I ended up facing the wrong direction and the reason that this accident was almost fatal was because of one simple word, overcorrection. I overcorrected, and that overcorrection almost led to a fatal accident. I think when we look into this text in James chapter 2, if we understand what's happening in context, here's what we will see. James is addressing a group of people who have, in fact, found themselves in a very similar spiritual condition. They have overcorrected. They are fatally heading in the wrong direction because of overcorrection. Let me remind everybody today that the audience James was writing to was a group of new believers. These are people who had just said yes to Jesus, and they had converted over from Judaism. And Judaism, also affectionately called the law in the Bible, started out with the Ten Commandments from Moses, and then became the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And by the time it made its way to James and the people of that day, there were 632 laws, and a few thousand additions to those laws and other provisions and amendments and all kinds of rules that people had to live by. You were, you were made right with God if you could follow a couple thousand rules every single day of your life. And the second you broke it, you weren't right with God any longer. And your eternity and your nearness to, Jesus, or to God was based on whether or not you could keep all the rules. Depressing way to live life. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he completely changes the game. He completely changes the rules. He's like, I made these rules, so we're gonna switch it up a little bit. He comes to the earth and he lives for 33 years following every single one of those few thousand rules, gives his life ultimately on a cross as a sinless sacrifice and says, because you could never do this, I'm gonna do it on your behalf. I'm gonna give my life and become the sacrifice for many. And now all you need to do is place your faith in me and the finished work of the cross. And it doesn't matter if you break a few rules along the way. My sacrifice is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And now you can enter into eternity with me and live on earth with me simply because you believe that what I did matters. 
That is the gospel, by the way. I know I said that this book was written to a group of believers, but if you're here today and you're still questioning, let me just say over you today, you did not walk into a room with a group full of people that are trying to figure out how to follow a few more rules and how to make our lives a little bit better. We are here simply falling at the feet of Jesus every single week saying, we haven't figured it all out yet, but we trust you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you you're not holding our sin against us. That is the good news of the gospel. But the problem was, these people responded to the good news in a bad way. Rather than allowing the good news to spawn good works in their life, to stir them up to do more for Christ or to live nearer to Jesus, instead, they overcorrected. They said, okay, well, we've, we've spent all this time following thousands of rules, and you're telling me that I don't have to follow any rules anymore. Like, I don't have to do anything to please God. I can just put my faith in Jesus. Done. Sold. I believe in God, and I'm going to do whatever I want with the rest of my life. And they just went crazy. Kind of like a homeschooler that just went off to college. Like, things got really, really bad. <laughs> my kids are homeschooled, so I do not prophesy that over them. <laughs> like, they just started living however they wanted to live. There was some predominant thoughts of the day and hedonism and Gnosticism, which basically said I can do whatever I want with my body and it doesn't matter, my body's separate from my spirit as long as I believe in Jesus and that's all that matters. And they begin to live very ungodly lives as a result of receiving this good news. And James is coming to them, he's like, guys, you've overcorrected here, okay? Like, you're heading the wrong direction. You're going the opposite way that Jesus has called us to live. Yes, it is by faith alone that you are saved, but that faith should provoke you to live a godly life. As some of the theologians of old said, and I think we have this quote for the screen, but it says, yes, you are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Like, it should produce something in us. And so that's what James is trying to get to when he's addressing all of these new Christians. He's like, guys, you, you've, you've missed it. Like, this, this faith should provoke you to live differently than you were living before. And then he takes it a step further. He's like, hey, um, you know how you guys pray that prayer every single day? And you're like, oh, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's, a, it's called the Shema. It's, a, it's a, 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 a prayer that every single person in that context would have understood. He's like, you know, every morning and a couple times a day you pray this prayer. That's awesome that you believe that God is one. So do the demons. Oh, oh. Like, you ever had someone say that to you before? Like, yeah, I believe in God. I would not recommend James's response, by the way. That's, that's really mean. Like, oh, well, so do the demons. Like, uh. But, but he's, he's, he's tapping into the heart of where all these people are living. He's like, guys, believing in one God is great. But it should change the way you live your life. That faith should provoke us to good works. The grace of God was never intended to be a license for us to continue to live an ungodly life. The grace of God is the empowerment to live the way he has called us to live, to truly live for Jesus. And that's what James is getting to here. He's like, guys, do not accept the grace of God in vain. I don't tell you all of that to discourage you. I don't tell you that to give you a history lesson. 
I don't tell you that simply so that the next time somebody says, well, I believe in God, you go, well, it's cool, so do the demons. Like, that's not why I tell you that. I tell you that because the reason stuff like this is in Scripture for us is so that we can use what we've read to assess our lives and go, okay, is there any similarities to the response of the people of God in that day and my life? Have I overcorrected in any way in the name of grace? I remember when uh, Robin and I first started uh, pastoring, the, the grace message was, was very popular. It was an important message in the body of Christ. It was often that you would find somebody standing on a stage or a series that was revolving around the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the fact that we didn't work our way to heaven, but Jesus came from heaven to earth to make a way for mankind. And it, it was a very consistent message on every single platform, and rightfully so. For the last century, in many ways, the church has gotten it very, very wrong. Many denominations have been forged around the idea that you have to follow a certain set of rules or dress a certain way or act a certain way or believe a certain thing. And if you don't do it that way, then, well, you're not going to make it to heaven. Basically, another modern-day version of extending the law, adding more to what God has said. And they got a little bit crazy over the last hundred years. There was denominations that said, well, women can't wear pants and women can't wear makeup and you can't watch TV because TV's the devil. And you can't listen to secular music because secular music is the devil. And you can't go to the bowling alley because the bowling alley, everything was the devil. Like the devil was everywhere. And so the church was plagued for years with no bowling, bad entertainment, terrible music. I remember being a teenager and like having these worship ceremonies where people would break their CDs, all of their secular CDs, and we're like, we're going to serve God now. Woo! Like, okay. The, the, the church had a lot of bad stuff going for it. Women weren't allowed to wear makeup and wear pants. Like, we had unattractive women for years in the body of Christ, okay? <laughs> Come on, how many grateful we don't live in that? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, don't raise your hand. But there was no grace. It was work, 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 work. It was all works. It was rules. It was regulations. It was finger pointing. It was climb the ladder and measure up. Every week, people would have to get saved because the preacher's message would just feel like, well, hell is hot and you don't want to go there, so you better get saved again. Like, there was no love. There was no grace. And so this message, which is in fact the truth, that the grace of God is, is for us, that his forgiveness is sufficient and that we don't need to work our way to him at all. It was a welcome breath of fresh air in the body of Christ. Oh, thank you that we don't live there any longer. But the other side of that truth is that when we receive the grace of God, it should compel us to live a different life. Grace should not excuse bad behavior and wipe it under a rug. Grace should empower me to live differently. Grace should make me generous, not excuse my greed. Grace should make me humble, not excuse my pride. Grace should make me want to serve, not continue to live self-serving because, oh, it's under grace. Grace should allow my actions and my confession to align. The God I say I believe in and the Jesus who laid his life down for everybody else should be my model, the one that I attain to live like. That's what grace is supposed to do to compel us to live differently.
Now, even as I say that, there are probably some people in the room here today that you are already ticked off at me right now. And you probably grew up in a church or you spent some years in dead religion and people were forcing you to do things and live a certain way and I'm, I'm, I'm rubbing you the wrong way right now. And in the back of your head, you're going, all right, well, I have to go up to him after church. I'm gonna have to say something to him, you know, because Paul said this and you're quoting Paul and you're drafting the email you're gonna send me right now in your head after church and I know who you are. But gear down, shifter, for just a second, okay? Let's, can we consider something? Are we perhaps so sensitive because of years of bad theology and bad teaching and abusive leadership and denominations that even the suggestion James is making here that our, our faith should have some works attached to it, are we so hurt that the second somebody makes a declaration like that, it's like, poking at an old wound that hasn't quite healed yet. Because the Apostle Paul, whom you might quote in contrast to what I'm saying, also said in 1 Corinthians 15.10 that by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Meaning it changed the way I live my life. And Ephesians 2.8 and 9, which is probably the, the mantra for the opposite of what I'm saying right now, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not a, uh, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, it says not of works. Yeah, but he also wrote the very next sentence in verse, in verse 10. It says we were created in Christ Jesus anew to do the good works that he created us to do from the beginning. So it's not one or the other. It's both. This, this is how we should live our lives. So if that is the case, then where does that leave us? Where do we find ourselves in this continuum of faith and works, grace and works? Where, where are we at? Well, let me, let me let a little bit of air back into the room because I, I understand that this could come across a little heavy-handed. That is not James's intention here. His intention is not to make anybody leave the room today and go, all right, that's it. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to give five bucks to that homeless guy I see every single day. I'm going to massage my wife's shoulders tonight when she asks me to. Like, I'm going to do the good works. Like, Let's go. That's not it. That's not his desire. If, if everything we've just talked about does nothing more than provoke you to try to do more good, then all we've done is overcorrect and overcorrection. All we've done is to go, okay, I'm going to work. Well, then we're right back where we started in dead religion. And that's not the goal. The goal is assessment. The goal is for us to go, how has God's grace affected the way I live my life? The, the uh, theologian Vernon McGee, he said like this, works is the test tube of our faith. It's, it's proving whether there's something good inside of our hearts. What's in question is not our works. This is all about focusing in on our faith. So, I'm going to offer you a single statement. And this statement is what's been the result of hours of arduous study all week long, okay, and tried to figure out the best way to say this so that no one feels discouraged and all of us understand the truth behind this statement. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Works aren't work. They're fruit. Works aren't work. They're fruit. Let me explain. One of the rules of interpreting scripture, the rules of uh, hermeneutics, 
is that Scripture interprets Scripture. If there's anything inside the Bible that I don't understand or that kind of rubs me the wrong way or causes me to question what I believe, then the answer is not me trying to figure it out on my own, but the answer is to go back to the Bible and go, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this predicament I find myself in? So the answer to James chapter 2 is not for us to go out and try to work our way to do better, but rather to come back to the centrality of Scripture and go, what does the Bible have to say about works? And as we go to the Word of God, it becomes clear that this is not an attempt for us to try to work harder to please God, but that works are the natural outflow of a believer. It doesn't require our work. It's natural for us. Let, let me share a scripture with you to prove this. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. And I love this scripture. It is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. I've, I, it's changed the way I live my life. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. It says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. When you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Translation, when you are directed by the Spirit of God, you do not need a law to tell you what you should and you shouldn't do. You don't need someone trying to govern the way you live your life. You naturally tend to do the right thing when the Holy Spirit is in fact in control and guiding your life. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. <sighs> That's not fun. But, oh, excuse me, but I say anyone who's living that life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of, what? Fruit in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then I love the way he ends it. There is no law against these things. You don't need a law to try to figure out how to do those things. When you are directed by, when you are led by the Spirit, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are good works. He calls it fruit. And just because I want to be a fifth grade teacher for a moment, who produces that fruit? Oh, not a, okay. The Holy Spirit is the answer. Okay. <laughs> we got some work to do, people, all right? The Holy Spirit produces that fruit. You don't produce that fruit. You do not work to produce that fruit. The Holy Spirit produces that fruit for you. It's not a matter of me trying to, oh, I'm going to produce some fruit. <laughs> it just happens. When you walk with the Spirit, it becomes natural for you to be more kind, for you to have more joy, for you to be faithful to God, for you to be gentler to people instead of aggressive and rough around the edges. Like, it becomes natural. Just like a tree does not have to force itself to produce fruit, so the natural outflow of the life of a believer should be to produce fruit. I'm not leaving, don't worry. <laughs> like he's done. No. So, I have a fruit tree here. And if you look really, really close at this fruit tree, you'll see it's budding, and it's got some little, uh, some little lemons that are on their way out here. It's a Meyer lemon tree. My, oh, I just got, oops. 
<laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> Sorry. Now, yesterday when I went to, um, is it called a nursery? I've never been before. <laughs> to the nursery, and I was looking for fruit trees. I didn't survey the citrus tree area and witness a bunch of fruit trees just like, come on, you can do it. No. Why? Because a fruit tree just produces fruit. It's just what it does. It doesn't have to try. It just happens. And so often, I think when we read scriptures like this or we consider what it's supposed to be like when we follow Jesus, we have a whole lot of people that are trying really, really hard to please God. You don't have to try. It should just happen naturally. The, the, the goal is not to work harder. It's to simply stay planted. If you stay planted, you will produce fruit. If you stay planted in the word of God, you will produce the fruit that you want to see in your life. When you stay planted in the house of God, you will flourish according to scripture. When you stay planted in community, you won't be able to take 20 steps away and find yourself in a squirrely situation because you've got people around you that are going to call you out and bring you back into community. When you stay planted in the things of God, you begin to produce fruit that is consistent with where you're planted. But let me offer this as well. This is a brand new tree. It hasn't been around for very long. And so the fruit that's left is very small. And that's okay. It's okay that there are not full-grown lemons on this tree right now. Why? Because it's a brand new tree. Let's make sure that we are not, as believers, pointing out to the lives of others that have recently made a decision to follow Jesus and trying to get them to produce fruit that is inconsistent with the season that they're in right now. Let's make sure that we are not quick to point out that our tree is just filled with fruit while this person who's been following Jesus for six months is still trying to figure out how to get out of that unhealthy relationship and still trying to figure out how to break that addiction. And you're like, well, you came to Jesus. You should have figured it out by now. No, 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 no. Fruit is seasonal, okay? It takes time for this stuff to produce. It's called a process. Let's not rush the process in anybody's life. Let's just understand that whatever season you're in, you can produce fruit that is consistent with the length of time which you've been planted. But hey, if you've been around for like a decade and this is still what your tree looks like, Maybe it's time to go, ow, there's a thorn. <laughs> Maybe it's time. <laughs> it's the devil. <laughs> Maybe it's time to go, man, I probably need to plant myself in the word of God and in the house of God and in community in a fresh way so that I can start producing some fruit that's consistent with my season. 
So here's my admonition to you today. Don't try harder to do better. Works aren't work. Just stay planted. That's it. Just stay planted. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.